we've been waiting for this for so we were not in the last one, but we're gonna do it. We're gonna go all the way. I know we can do it. We're feeling confident, excited. Like our chances. But I think that we have it. The Dutch aren't the Dutch of old, and I think we got it. One nothing. Two zero USA. We're going to win three zero. Two one USA. Two one. Two one USA. Two one Yanks. I'm feeling it. Yep. One nothing USA. One hundred percent. We believe that we can win. Five percent. Go USA. 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 Live and underway here on ESPN Plus as we bring you more beautiful images of Tari Capital Doha in the immediate aftermath of a round of 16 showdown between the United States and Netherlands at Khalifa International Stadium. The Dutch in the end, Herc, winners by a final score of 3 to 1. Been a while since we got to see the US in knockout round action. At the World Cup, I thought you were tense during the group phase. You were even more fired up to watch this one. No, no, not fired up. A little disappointed. Really? Yeah. But even during the game, I, I, I could sense, like, you really, really wanted this team to win. All that talk of, like, free hit, free roll. Once a game starts, no, and I think probably it, the fans felt that, not, too. It's not that I wanted them to win. Um, you believe they could. Well, I, I realistically did believe they had a fighting chance, mm -hmm. and that's what made it even more disappointing. Mm -hmm. It's the way they go out. Um, I knew it was over once everybody started agreeing with me. <laughs> <laughs> right, once right. the FC panel, once the Picante panel yep. started going, you know what, you convinced me. I, I started thinking to myself, this is way too easy. It's yeah. not going to go down this way. And I got that feeling uh, the first 15 minutes of watching the game the posture from both teams, right. it left me a little unsettled. Yeah, it was very interesting, kind of in the 24 hours leading into this match, how many people that we talked to around, and you heard it from our colleague over at ESPN Netherlands, Pascal Camperman, he called it 50-50. Our colleagues at ESPN Argentina, ESPN Mexico, everybody said, hey, the U.S. FC guy, really Shaka has Craig. Sh really yeah. has a shot here. Uh, Frank LaBeouf. Had oh, a that was over once Frank yeah, the U.S. Yeah, right. He had the U.S. <laughs> to, uh, to win in penalties. Unfortunately, it does not go down that way. So we're going to cover this from every angle. We got uh, Casey Keller, who's going to be joining us in just a little bit. We got Alexis Nunez, who's live outside the stadium. She, of course, will bring us uh, the fan perspective. We're also going to break it down from a tactical perspective with El Profe, Juan Carlos Osorio. But Herc, let's just get your first raw reactions as the U.S. are out in the round of 16. My first raw reaction is, yes, this Netherlands team is better man for man. Mm -hmm. There is no argument about that. Where they play, their curriculums, ceiling, whatever you want, they're just better man per man. I think it's evident. But even more so when we talk about the coaching. Louis van Gaal, ate Greg Berhalter's lunch. Why? What specifically? Louis van Gaal and this Netherlands team never wanted to run with the United States men's national team. Frankie de Jong, Darun, they're not going to run with Weston McKinney, with Tyler Adams, Eunice Musa. They know that's the strength of this core of this team. They never wanted that. Mm -hmm. But they knew that they weren't good enough to beat them 
on the ball with their quality. So why Greg Berhalter planted this team with their two outside backs to come in as interiors, mm -hmm. okay, and play make, if you will. And at times, Sergio Dest got into the final third and he looked dangerous. Anthony Robinson, not so much. But when they lose the ball, it's Weston McKinney and it's Yunus Musa out of position, and that ball is immediately coming. It's Darun. It's Frankie de Young immediately coming down the heart, down the spine of your defense. And it's an immediate opportunity for the Netherlands team. It's immediate opportunity for Mensa Zapai. It's immediate opportunity at the goal of uh, Matt Turner. It was just very naive. Mm. Very naive that you could think that going into a game with a team like the Netherlands, you were going to have more quality on the ball. They let you have it. Yeah. They disguised that possession for you. And yes, you had an early opportunity with Christian Pulisic, but this pretty much went down the way that Louis van Gaal had envisioned it. So it feels like three hours ago now, but the first 10 minutes of the game, from a U.S. perspective, I'm thinking, this is great. Pulisic has the, the obvious chance and misses, but it is one-way traffic. 70 thinking, to 30% possession. You're thinking it, I mean, it wasn't even close. This is exactly what the U.S. wants. You're telling me that's not what the U.S. wants because on the counter, I mean, that goal, you got to admit, that goal from Memphis to Pine, we'll break it down a little bit later, but that came totally against the run of play. Like, wasn't the strategy effective in those first 10 minutes? And or is that actually, or is and, that And actually, if you look at the opportunity that Christian Pulisic has, it's, it's almost a 50-50 ball that gets kind of whipped right back right, in and he finds right. himself in an onside position to his own surprise. Yeah. And he's too quick instead of composing himself. And while, well, uh, Nuber has that save, and it stays 0-0. But this is exactly what this Dutch team wanted, what Louis van Gaal wanted. They wanted you to have possession, and they will pick you apart in transition. Now, they didn't want the U.S. to be that dangerous. They didn't want the U.S. to be that dangerous. They had one. That, or besides that, what did they have in the first half? Uh, Robinson got in behind in the seventh well, minute. McKinney that, had a quick throw into Pulley behind. Those are in the first ten minutes. That's all I'm talking a, a, about. A, cl a, clean, a clean look besides Pulisic. What do they have in the first half? So it, it, it went exactly how the Dutch wanted this to go. And they basically said, have the ball. You're not good enough to beat us. Yeah. We are when we can counter at pace with you. They didn't want to run with you. These guys, the Netherlands looked tired, fatigued in those final ten minutes. And that's why I think... Once the kitchen sink was thrown, once you had guys coming on like Giovanni Reyna, you had Haji Rai, you had Brendan Aronson, Yedlin now, you're getting all stretched. They're getting stretched. Yes, you had more chances at goal, okay? Because they are tired now, but they're also picking you apart in those transition moments when you are stretched, and you can see that. The, the third, the fourth, always look closer than the first for the U.S. That's a reality. The third, the fourth of Netherlands always look closer than the first. If it wasn't for Matt Turner, this game would have been over a long time ago. You know, we're going to talk a lot about the manager, and I'm sure that he deserves a, a certain amount of the criticism, but we got to focus on the, on the players here as well, because to your point, I think we saw the gap in quality. As, as golden of, of a generation as this is for the United States, and as n not golden as a generation as we've been told it was for the Dutch, you still see the gap. And I think you can fairly even say we see it in those first 10 minutes. Um, the clinical nature of Memphis Depay, and it's not just Depay, it's everybody involved in that buildup. Denzel Dumfries, when he gets into the final player third, of the game, it's not a, it's not a if he's going to put in a dangerous ball, it's where is he going to put the dangerous and ball to. Yeah. And, then, and then beyond that, when we talk about the midfield, where we, we felt there was a clear physical advantage for the United States, 
You know what still matters at the end of the day? What you do on the ball, your technique, your ability. And I think generally I've always felt this about the American game, the American development system. We, we put a premium. We put a premium on big kids, right? And on athletic kids. And what you saw from this Dutch team, especially in the buildup to their two goals in the first half is tiki-taka, ping, 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 ping. And almost like I felt like using the athleticism that we talked about with this U.S. midfield against them. You bring them in in a rush, and then you're out the other side, exactly. and it's easy. It's very easy. It's very easy for Frankie de Jong. And, and when you see a player of that quality, that caliber, uh, it looks like he didn't do a lot, but he was so influential when he did have the ball in the way he orchestrated and the way he got players going. You spoke about Denzel Dumfries. Mm -hmm. Serginho Dest had an opportunity to play with the Netherlands. Okay? Yeah. Um, Serginho Dest is one of the better players of the U.S. men's national team. He had, a, he had one of the better tournaments yep. in this World Cup. Serginho Dest is not playing over Dumfries. Yeah, I mean, Pascal told us he probably doesn't even get in their 26-man no. squad. A a and Dumfries was probably the best player on the field today. Yeah. And you can see when you talk about the talent level, and look, we're very proud of these players, you know, from a CONCACAF level, a CONCACAF perspective of how they did this tournament. Um, the the way they reacted from that second half against Wales, the total performance versus a very good English team, a, a, a very emotional game in Iran, and how they handled that. It's a very young team, and you should be very proud of how they handled those moments. But you can see the evident gap in talent when it comes to the players. Serginho Des, one of the better players, isn't on a Denzel Dumfries level. Not right now. But it's even more evident when you look at Louis van Gaal and that resume, that CV, and his actual tactical game plan today and how he just swallowed whole yeah. Greg Berhalter. So we criticized Tata Martino with Mexico against Argentina for not being aggressive enough. I actually thought the U.S. setup in the first half was very yeah. aggressive. They there were was naive. times at the back where they left it two on two and there was just tons of space. But isn't that kind of dying as you lived? Is there not some no, praise it's there? Different. It, it's being naive. Listen, are, is they that were only very hindsight. It should maybe, but like had, had the players look. I just want to throw a stat where, at you. Where do you something work? You point what out. What do we do? We break it down. All right. Okay. All right. Well, what I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is, I don't believe Greg Berhalter put his attacking players in a bad spot in the first half. I think he put them in good spots. Oh, and they I think didn't he convert. put them in a terrible position. The attacking players. Yes, because you have you have Serginho Dest and Anthony Robinson who did not have a good game. He had a very heavy foot. He's had a heavy foot on him all tournament, even more so this this tournament. And I, I give him a ton of credit for playing on one ankle. Mm -hmm. Basically, that's what he's been doing, playing on on, on one leg. Uh, but when you ask those two players to come in as interiors, and what I mean by interiors, and people should realize is mm -hmm. you're asking them to carry the ball from a wide position inside and play make as eights, okay? And what happens there is Eunice Musa and Weston McKinney will have to evacuate that space and they will go wide. And sometimes it looks like they're the right back or the left back or they're a winger, so to speak, and it's, it's Timothy Weah coming inside uh, and it's a lot of fluid movement. That is all good. That is great when you have the ball and it looks very good. It looks very nice. But you know what happens if you lose the ball? Mm. The harder that central midfield, you know where they are? Exposed. Next to the touchline. Yeah, and wide. you know where Tyler Adams is? On an island. 1v2. Yep. And all of a sudden, Tyler Adams has to worry about 1v2, Frankie de Young, and to run. And then he's got to go try to track back Memphis Depay. Yeah. And when he can't get there, guess what Memphis has? A free chance on goal. Mm. So what I'm trying to tell you, it was very naive. It was always going to be a game of pick your chances. 
you have to be very proud of how they played in certain matches in this tournament. But definitely, listen, goals change games. Yeah. Christian Pulisic scores that goal. It's a different game. Motion is different, not only for the U.S. men's national team, but for the Netherlands, and it can be a different game. But you have to be smarter than that. I, I think that's where I'm disappointed with Greg Berhalter in this U.S. men's national team. The stat team. I was going to throw out at you at the first half before we move on to the kind of the game-changing moment. 93 touches for the United States in the Dutch final third. Just 29 for Netherlands in the American final third. But to the point about quality, it's what you do with those touches. The Dutch were clinical throughout. Uh, the Americans obviously were not. Let's get to the game-changing moment because it is the goal that in the end puts Netherlands on top in the first half, 10 minutes in. It's a beautiful finish from the pie, but for me, really, it was a, a beautiful build-up from deep in midfield. Deep in midfield, Denzel Dumfries again, you know, very instrumental in the attack and it's so difficult when you're trying to chase a player of Memphis Depay's quality, mm -hmm. his pace uh, and he was brilliant throughout the game not only just how direct he can be but how smooth he is on the ball and well, his he ability was wide to open. who's got to be there he was wide open because you're telling me there's no problem with the way the U.S. men's national team played and you're okay with Serginho Dest and Anthony Robinson committing numbers forward but you're also asking me why is he so wide open, yeah. right? Because other players have to commit. Other players have to do things Where's when Musa? that happens. Where's Adams? Where's McKinney? Where's the runners? Exactly. That's a run. Exactly. Musa and Adams are out wide like I just told mm -hmm. you. They're lost in that play. They're eliminated. And then you're putting center backs man per man. Uh, and Memphis Depay, I mean, uh, so just clinical as he is. He it's was, not a hard run. It's a brilliant run. It's a brilliant yeah. run. Because most forwards will look for that near post run. It's a brilliant run in the sense that he holds that run. He knows exactly where this ball is coming. It's clipped back and he's there. Yeah. You know, it's obviously the game-changing moment, but you could point out a million different moments. The goal that falls just before the half. Give, give me the player's psychology there. Because if you're the U.S. at that point, you're saying, okay, one nothing, we got a shot. But I imagine that that changes not just the player's psychology, but then Greg Berhalter's halftime speech, halftime approach. Everything the is moves. Kind of, everything's his blown hand, up. His hand is forced right, right. once that second goal Such comes in. Such a dagger. Such a dagger. <clears throat> there are moments that change games. One of those moments is the first goal, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But you can maintain that. Yeah. You can work with that. You can get players to rally and know that you're still only a goal in this. It's just, hey, one goal, you're back in it. It's tied game. Nothing happens. But when you're so close to halftime, all you want to do is see it out, regroup at half. Okay? We'll talk about it in the dressing room. Mm -hmm. We'll gather our thoughts. We'll collect ourselves. We'll go back out there and start anew. But when that second goal comes in, right before half, it's just deflating. It, it feels like your soul is leaving your body. You can, literally, you can literally see it on the field, these players. That's a sinking feeling. And you go into halftime, and who knows what's being said, what's going on, how the coaching crew is responding, who's talking to who, who's seeing who warm up, what's going through those players' minds, what's going through Greg Berhalter's head. It, it all gets thrown for a loop in a matter of seconds. So you talked about the Christian Pulisic miss. What did you make of his performance overall? <clears throat> and we got, I think we got to put it in context. You know, coming off the pelvic contusion, not at 100% pretty clearly. Uh, but what did you think of his work on the field today? He was – he showed a lot of heart, a lot of battle. Wasn't as clean. Yeah. Wasn't as efficient. He wasn't um, what he is. He wasn't what he is. And you have to acknowledge that. And what he needs that. to be. What he needed to be today for this team, clearly. And, and we spoke about that. We spoke about that. If anybody needed to be that man today, it was Christian Pulisic. He had that chance. Um, he wasn't as composed yeah. as he normally is. I think he may have rushed himself. I don't know if he thought he was in an offside position, so it instinct, just instinct and you shoot, but he had more time on the ball yeah. than he actually realized. It's a great save in the end by Norbert. Norbert. Um, but it's something that he needs, 
he needed to, to make. He needed to score that goal. And listen, goals change the games. We said this. Maybe it's a different game if he puts that ball in the back of the net. Yeah, and I think beyond that, there was a few chances where he gets into dangerous spot and the final pass just didn't come off. Either it was our target or the Dutch broke it up. And uh, again, not to pick on Christian Pulisic, but he's been the guy. Yeah through the first three games for this team and clearly maybe just didn't have that, that 100% that, that he needed in a, in a knockout round game here at the World Cup. All right, let's call on our first guest on today's edition of Football Americas, Casey Keller, who's been a part of not one, not two, not three, but four World <laughs> Cup teams for the U.S. men's national team. Casey, the U.S. out in the round of 16, your first reaction to the game that we just witnessed. Well, I mean, I've been listening to you guys, and I, and, and I think I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Uh, uh, the idea that you were going to step into this game, uh, press Holland from you know the first minute, um, and it all and it was working. Look, there was points, but then there was a point where I was thinking, okay, now press five minutes, drop back, be a little bit uh, more professional here. Don't give those opportunities for guys to come sneaking in behind you. And, and, but no, they just kept pressing and pressing and pressing. And then, you know, look, it was a fantastic play that, uh, that the Dutch put together to open up that first goal. But when you have players pressing and then once that quick one-two touch passing puts those players behind you, there's a lot of space to be exposed behind. And, and you, you saw the difference in the match of how clinical – the Dutch were in the final third. And, and I mean, that was really the difference. Look, you can talk all you want about the, the 80 yards in midfield, the, you know, from five yards outside the 18 on both ends, but that's not where games are won. Where games are won is how you defend in one box and how you score goals in the other. And, and the Dutch showed you that that's exactly how you get yourself into the next round is how clinical you are both defensively and on the offensive side of things. And, and look, I, I love the way the team played, but there's a point where you just, and, and I, I heard you said it multiple times, just being a bit naive, and, and, and it did. It seemed a bit naive at times, and, and, and they got punished for it. Casey, you use the word professional. Dive in there. What, what do you mean by that? Well, to think that you're going to press this Dutch side for 90 minutes. What I love seeing is, is a team that's super well organized where, okay, here's my opportunity to win the ball in the, in the defensive third. Okay, it's not on. Okay, back up. Get good defensive shape. Now we'll keep good shape, wait for the opportunity, win the ball back, work something. Okay, put a good ball in the box, win the second ball, see if you can score a goal. Pick and choose your times. Uh, it, it just seemed like it was, okay, we're going to have our way with you. We're going to press you. We're going to press you. And I don't think they quite gave this Dutch side as much respect as they deserved. Uh, I, like everyone else, don't think this is a world-class Dutch side by any means. And I think the U.S. exposed uh, a lot of their weaknesses, particularly their athleticism. Um, there was times when the U.S. was – was definitely the stronger side athletically in midfield. But then there was also those times when, when, when the Dutch were able to show uh, their technical ability. And because of that, it exposed players in poor positions because they were advanced when 
they probably shouldn't have been. And, and it's, 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 it's a learning lesson. It, it, it happens. You get exposed by good teams. And, and what the U, where the U.S. was successful in this tournament was not conceding chances. That's why they got themselves to this point. Uh, they elected to be more aggressive, open themselves up defensively, and they paid the price for it. Yeah, to Casey's point, by far Matt Turner's busiest day, right? Without Not just a doubt. the saves. He had four saves, but he was busy throughout. W without a doubt. I love that Casey used the term professional um, because to me, and he mentioned that, that there's a discipline to being professional. But don't confuse being disciplined as being defensive. Mm. You have to be disciplined in the way you attack so you don't leave yourself vulnerable for chances that the opposition could take advantage of. They were not. They were very naive. And yes, to an extent, as Casey said, they didn't respect this Dutch team maybe as much as they should have. They were very content with sitting back and saying, okay, let's see how good you are if you can break us down. Okay, but we don't think you can break us down. And guess what? We think you're actually going to be naive enough to think so and are going to leave those spaces for us to attack. And they did. I love the term professional because there's so much to it than just a defensive effort. Right, and the stats there tell us it, right? More touches in the attacking third, more touches in the opponent's box for the United States. But again, what do you do with those touches and then how does it leave you exposed on the other end? Casey, I want to talk about some of the big decisions that Greg Berhalter made today. Probably no decision bigger than what he did with the number nine position. What did you think of the call to go with Jesus Ferreira, who had not played yet in this tournament? Well, it obviously didn't work. I mean, he got subbed at halftime. So I think he was cornered a little bit because of the injury to Josh Sargent. I don't think he felt that Haji Wright was uh, in a position to necessarily start. Um, but we talked about this position from years. And then obviously in the build-up to the tournament and how, you know, this could be a problem going forward. And, and obviously it was. And, and in the end, he, he, he made a decision. He realized it was a wrong decision at halftime and, and made the change. Uh, it, it's hard to be critical when you really don't have the option. You, you're then saying, do you go with a midfield, false nine, all that, you know, now, now you're just, you, you're throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. So, look, I understand why he went with Jesus Ferreira. Um, but I think there was also a reason that was telling him why Jesus didn't play in those first uh, three uh, in those in those group stage matches, and and we saw that today that maybe Jesus, good good season in MLS, but you know up against uh, the likes of a Virgil Van Dyke and then okay, it just was too much for him. Yeah, Ain't Granada. It ain't Granada, Herc. Well, not only that, uh, we're in a Winter World Cup, so you get one week from the tournament starting, mm -hmm. and then you're here. So those players who are in form in the regular season will probably be the most effective players in well, this World it. Cup. Yeah. Uh, his last game was October 23rd versus Austin. Playoffs, MLS. Playoffs, yep. MLS playoffs. October 23rd. And Casey mentioned it. There's a reason he probably didn't play those three group stage games. I probably would have gone back to the well if you had to use a nine, if there's no Josh Sargent, if you're forced to use an actual nine. How'd you write? Uh, it, he, he's there. And he's playing regularly in Turkey. He's got goals under his belt. Um, at halftime, he did what finally everybody wanted yeah. to do, that false nine. He went there. There was more chances. I get it. You're throwing everything. Uh, caution to the wind. You're being more proactive going forward. But there's a reason why Jesus Ferreira 
didn't play in the first three games, and he was put in a very difficult position. Yeah, so he's replaced at the half by Gio Reyna. The, the other subs in the second half, Aronson, uh, Haji Wright, Yedlin, they seem to have a big impact for the United States. Uh, Casey, what did you make of us finally seeing Gio Reyna in a significant role here? Uh, he got the 45 minutes there in the second half, and really the other changes that Greg Berhalter made and how they may have impacted this match. Yeah, it's kind of hard. I mean, look, Gio, we know, we know the qualities that Gio has. And, and it was the big question mark is, is knowing the depth kind of on that wide attacking roles is how does Greg find uh, either the time or the place on the field to get these guys on the pitch as much as we all would like to see them on the pitch with Aronson as well in that conversation. And, you know, it was. It was a surprise that, that he had played seven minutes only in, in, the, in the opening three matches. So... He had the opportunity. I, I thought we saw what we saw from Gio, the quality to be able to link players, to uh, get past a player at times, put a dangerous ball in the box. But it also was a little bit false because it, a 2-0 lead on a Dutch side that was already conceding possession to the U.S., uh, it, was, it was clear that the U.S. was going to have a lot of ball, particularly in midfield. And, and, uh, and obviously the movement was there. You talked about then that we did see more of that false nine. And there was a lot of movement across the whole front. But when you have the quality of, of, of center backs that, that the Dutch have, you need that extra man to actually get in front of one of those center backs to see if you could actually challenge him. I'm going to go back to a, one of the big question marks before the tournament even started. Should they have brought PFOC? Should they have brought Sibichu? Was he a guy that, that in a game like this where you needed another big body to be able to run in front of a, a bigger defender – a guy that was scoring goals to start the season in the Bundesliga, is he a guy that, that really should have been able to come off the bench? Hmm. Yeah, and you know what's interesting about that? The 26-man roster. It feels like you could have brought, whether it was PFOC, whether it was Pepe, you could have brought... He's a, a big name, right? Well, you could have brought another forward. And to Casey's point, you know, it's almost like Jesus Ferreira gets a start today by default, right? right? Sergeant isn't available, and Haji Wright has literally just been introduced into this team. Especially when you look at the players who weren't used. Maybe you thought that you would have more of a chance of using a certain player in an offensive position, a profile player, and I'm talking about a nine. I will go back to, the, to Gio Reyna actually coming into the game. I love that Gio Reyna finally came into the game. What I do not like is where Gio Reyna was occupying spaces. He was inserted into this game as the false nine. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't have been my first choice if I went false nine. It would have been Timothy Weah. And you could see it by Gio's movements and maybe unfamiliarity with the situation. He didn't exactly know how to occupy the center backs. And I get it in case touched upon it, Ake, Timber, uh, you know, Van Dyke, they're very good center backs, very high-level center backs. But Timothy Weah was busy in the first half. Timothy Weah was busy throughout the game. You put a player like that that can stretch, that can come in, that could get on the ball, turn face, and maybe it frees up Gio Reyna elsewhere, whether it's on the wing or coming in centrally. I think if we go big picture here, fans probably feel pretty good about this tournament overall. Sure. But we've had Casey on this show a few times. You talk about exigencia, right? Standards. I think Casey has very high standards for what he expects from this national team. Casey, right now, do you feel frustrated? Was this a missed opportunity? Or are you satisfied with what the U.S. did in this tournament? I'm actually both. Um, I'm, I'm definitely satisfied with what I've seen. I loved... <laughs> 
the, the team togetherness, the way they defended through midfield from the front. Uh, you know, we were talking about it on FC and, and, and really that, you know, when you look at the games, yeah, there was a couple mistakes that weren't punished. And I'll go back to that free header from Harry Kane and stoppage time. But for the most part, Matt Turner had a pretty quiet three games. Now, yeah, he made some great saves today, which was, which was nice to see. But, but it was a really good team effort to, to make sure that, that they kept their opponents you know, away from their goal. Now, finding that balance then between being more offensive-minded, Herc, I know you've been talking about it, is then how can you then attack Keep yourself uh, with good cover defensively, but then be dangerous in the attacking third. We missed a little bit of that. I think maybe we needed a little bit more from, from let's say, a Christian or maybe a, a, a Tim Weah to be able to, to beat guys, keep possession deeper in, but then, the, but then get runs. I think it's, it's, it's hard that I did. I would have loved to have seen you know, a couple more runs from Weston McKinney. Yes, he had the great run against England and, and, and probably should have scored where he got in the box and, and, and blazed over the top. We saw, I think, a, another shot today from, from McKinney where he put the ball over the bar. So I think that was a little bit of a disappointment. But And then you're coming up against a, a Dutch side that was beatable. I mean, there's not many times you're co- going to come up against, you know, the Netherlands and, and know that it's a team that, that you can beat. And... Uh, that's where I was disappointed with the way this game transpired, the way the U.S. started the game bright, but maybe a little too aggressive, got hit on the counter. Uh, but that, uh, you know, you guys were talking about before I came on, the, the, the daily blend goal before the half changed everything. It, it changed everything that Greg was probably going to do at halftime, made him have to, to, to change formations, change player personnel. And, and, and that was, that was the killer. That was the naive moment that really, uh, is the disappointment, but big picture, very, very happy, happy for guys like Tim Ream, who had a fantastic tournament uh happy for for that that midfield crew tyler adams had a a really good tournament what did we talk about before the game you needed the core of your star players to show up they did that and then you needed some surprises from some other guys tim ream being a great surprise played so well cameron carter vickers coming in and having a really really good game against iran uh and then uh, you, you, you've talked about Wea. You talked about Pulisic had a had a good tournament, I think, without really you know. Knowing, but we know he can he can give this side more. But overall, super happy. You could be satisfied with what you saw in the group phase and still disappointed because of what Case just mentioned. It is an opportunity missed, an opportunity lost that you probably will never have back. You probably will never have this type of opportunity versus this type of Netherlands. The Netherlands that looked very beatable in the group phase. Just generally in the round of 16, in you don't get 16. very many games that you feel are accessible. And I feel like a lot of people thought this was accessible, but maybe we were overstating that. I mean, we saw a clear gap between the two sides, didn't well, we, today? Well, it's not that we were overstating it, because it'd be one thing if it was just Casey saying it, if it was just you saying it, or if I felt that way. But the overwhelming response yeah. from everybody, all our colleagues here, all, our, all the pundits around us were... Was and even Pascal, who's who's from the Netherlands, was this is a very tight game and Netherlands is very beatable. The U.S. can beat them. The U.S. has 
quality enough to beat them. But I think that quality was based on the fact that they were so good defensively and they were so lethal in transition. They picked their moments, and that was not the U.S. men's national team we saw today. They got stretched, their shape was out of whack, and they got hurt by some very good players. Um, and you got to put some respect on that orange machine. Let's talk about the coach. Casey, you obviously have a long-standing relationship with Greg Berhalter, and you said something very interesting the other day on this show. You mentioned that he may want to pursue something different than the national team for another four years through 2026. He, he loves working with players every day. Uh, maybe, maybe there's a return to the club game. Maybe in Major League Soccer, maybe this could boost his profile internationally. Maybe he could get you know, another opportunity uh, in Europe. But Casey, I'm going to give you the job of U.S. Soccer Federation president. I know it's not one you want, but I'm going <laughs> to give it to you for this, for this hypothetical. Uh, would you offer Greg another four years through 2026 based on this World Cup? Because I feel like for all that happened in qualifying, at the end of the day, when we judge international managers, we got to judge him off the World Cup. Has he done enough for you to say, you know what, this is a guy to best prepare us for 2026 when the World Cup is going to be in the U.S. and, of course, Canada and Mexico as well? U.S. soccer had set two goals for Greg Berhalter. First, to qualify. Second, to get out of the group stage. When you achieve both goals, it's kind of really difficult to then not think that uh, – that they deserve another opportunity if they want it. And, and that's obviously there's always going to be criticism. And what's nice is the reason why there's criticism is because our squad depth is strong enough now that you actually can say, are you sure this guy shouldn't have been called into the squad? This guy should have been played. Should we play this formation? Mm -hmm. If you don't have the squad depth, that's not even a question. But in the end, you, what you do with the squad to be able to achieve your goals that's all you can ask, and, and, and Greg achieved those. Now, you also have to look into some of the questions that we talked about uh, the last time, is there hasn't been a lot of success lately on the second go-around. Do you want to, as a young manager, <coughs> excuse me, do you want to tarnish the good work you did here with possibly issues in the future? Um, I know that's always uh, hypotheticals or hypotheticals, right? But, but that's what we're kind of paid to talk about at times. And, and so, yeah, I mean, the only person you can really ask is Greg. And, I, and, I, and I'm sure he's going to have a long debrief after this. He's going to, you know, do some soul searching within himself, within the family. Uh, see what, obviously, if there are options, right? I mean, we don't know. I mean, Obviously, in able to leave U.S. soccer, you're not going to just resign probably and uh, hope somebody comes knocking. There's got to be offers and able to see if, uh, if they make sense and, and weigh things up after that. But uh, I think Greg has done the job that he was asked to do. And with a really young group of players, uh, we saw some very good things in this World Cup. And, and what's, what's great and I'm, I'm going to say this, this is a good thing, is the disappointment knowing that maybe there could have been more. Not, look, let's go back, let's go back to the Belgian game where Tim had the great game and they hung on for dear life. That was a hanging on for dear life. The U.S. was in this game all the way besides a couple mistakes that showed some naive uh, defending, some naive just approach. But at 2-1, 
the Dutch did not want to go into the end of this game 2-1, and that's why I think we were all devastated when that mm. third goal came. But it was not a, a hanging on for dear life as a team just pummels your goal and your goalkeeper just keeps getting hit, hit in the head with the ball. So, I mean, this is... This was a good performance, and, and, and it's nice that it, it leaves you disappointed, and that shows you where the program's going, that you can play against uh, a Netherlands in the second round of the World Cup and be disappointed. Berhalter 2026, Herc. Does he get your vote? He achieved both goals. He qualified, and he got them out of the group. Does he get my vote for 2026? Because it's a different question, right? We can say he was successful this time around without giving him the job for the next four years. No, he doesn't get my vote of confidence. Really? 2026, all these players will be 25, 26 years In old. In their prime, beginning In of their, their prime. In their prime, playing a World Cup at home. I can't, he I can't sit here with a straight face and tell you that I think Greg Berhalter is capable of taking this team on a deep run then. If I can't answer that question, he shouldn't be the coach. Hmm. Casey, uh, real quick to you, because we've mentioned some of the U.S. failures, right, with hiring a coach for a second cycle. We can look at Jurgen Klinsmann, didn't survive his second cycle. We can look at Bob Bradley, didn't survive his second cycle. We can look at Bruce Arena, whose second World Cup is much worse than his first World Cup. But I can also, as we have on this show before, point out that there are examples of countries that have stuck with international managers for a long time and had great success because of it. Specifically, I'm thinking Spain. Specifically, I'm thinking Uruguay. Generally, Casey, when we talk about a potential eight-year tenure at the international stage, do you think that's a, a good idea? Is that the correct way to go? Um, or do you think the lifespan of an international manager should be just the four years and hit the reset button? Yeah, I personally think that it's, it's, it's more of the latter, that you have a, a, a time with a group of guys and then it, it becomes repetitive. You know, the difference with a club situation is there's always new faces coming in because you're always buying new, new players and players are leaving and, 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 you're, and it's kind of a different locker room all the time. The national team, you're pretty much stuck with the group of players you have. And so it becomes the same thing over and over and over again. And I think that's why sometimes it's nice to have uh, a different voice now. You talked about how young this, this group is. And what you also can't have is that complacency with a young group that's four years older now thinking, okay, I was this coach's favorite player at this stage. Now I can just cruise into the next one. Mm. So sometimes having to, to prove yourself to a new coach all over again is also a, a new motivational factor. So, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's pros and cons for both. But I think uh, let's, let's look at Belgium. Uh, obviously, Roberto Martinez has been there for a while. It yeah. obviously didn't go well for them. Um, and, and there is sometimes that new voice for both things, maybe for an older team that has gotten complacent and then you know, a group of players that, that has been successful with one manager you know, that's the tough part about this, guys. There is no right answer. There's no wrong answer. It's, it's simply trying to figure out uh, what's the best scenario. And, 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 and then the other side of it, too, for U.S. soccer is then what are the options if, if either Greg chooses to leave mm -hmm. or you choose to go in a new direction? So 
just to change for the sake of changing, um, you know, obviously they made the decision on Bob Bradley because Jurgen Klinsmann was available. Um, if I don't see after the success, but then again, Bob very successful uh, in South Africa getting out of the out of the group stage. So. Yeah, U.S. soccer has shown that they're not afraid to make a difficult decision at times. But, uh, yeah, I think a lot of it will depend on, on, on the options of both Greg Berhalter and what the Federation thinks. Uh, but let's be honest, when you don't have to qualify, I don't know how many managers want to come in. You talk to a lot of managers. Do they want to come in four years for a side that doesn't have to qualify and you're stuck playing a bunch of nothing friendlies until... You know, if, if that move is going to be made, it'll, it would probably be made a year out, a year and a half out. It's a great point. Casey, uh, thanks so much for your perspective. i got to cut you loose, but I'll see you in about six hours on ESPN FC. And generally, thank you so much. You've been a huge part of our coverage here on Football Americas. I know we dragged you out of bed there on always West Coast a, time, but you are the man, yeah. uh, and we really I do mean, appreciate it. West Coast it. time, come on, guys. I didn't even have a time to shave. You know, so uh, you, you got the worst part of me. But uh, next time, I promise, I'll shave. So thanks, we'll guys. take it. Right. At least you didn't oversleep like some people uh, here. That would be you. Yes, uh, I, have, uh, I have had that happen to me here in Qatar. Just once, just once. Uh, let's go big, big picture here. Because I feel like in this moment, it, it, U.S. fans might be feeling down. But if you look at everybody else in the region... They're feeling worse because they went home in a group phase. I'm talking about Canada. I'm talking about Mexico. I'm talking about Costa Rica. So in this kind of never-ending conversation of who is the giant of CONCACAF, the most important measuring stick is the World Cup. Has the U.S., after seemingly at least reaching Mexico with the Nations League and the Gold Cup and qualifying success as well, has it overtaken Mexico now as the true giant of CONCACAF? So this is what us Smurfs are doing now. We're, we're arguing over who's taller. <laughs> exactly. This okay. World Cup, it does feel like that, yeah. Well, just in general, because CONCACAF, I think you can see it by the numbers left in, in the but World But you got to compare yourself to your neighbors, right? Fair, fair. In that sense, the U.S. men's national team in this moment are the kings of CONCACAF. Mm -hmm. um, I don't even think it's debatable. Right. Won the Nations League, CONCACAF Nations League, won the Gold Cup, last man standing, only team to make it to the knockout round in a World Cup. Most players in Europe, highest profile players, mm -hmm. I, I, youngest pool of youngest players, pool of players so, so highest that, ceiling. So that's where I want to go next because I feel like the giant of CONCACAF can change in the 2000s just as much as, just as much history as any other nation in CONCACAF. I feel like it can change week to week almost sometimes, right? Like when U.S beat Mexico in the Nations League final, and then Gold Cup, we said, okay, U.S. is on top. And then Canada finishes first in qualifying, and we, we kind of even threw them into the mix. Do you feel like the U.S. now has established themselves as such a giant of CONCACAF that the gap to everybody else or the gap to specifically Mexico is enough that it'll last the next four years? Or do you think Mexico, with all the problems that you talked Ooh. about last time, because I think that's the, real, that's the real competition we're still talking about here with all due respect to Canada. Do you think Mexico is anywhere near being able to, to regain the edge that we would have said they had not all that long ago, probably 2019 pre-pandemic? Absolutely, and I think because of the U.S., and their success, Mexico 
would hit that ref restart button quick, would refresh things. El Mundial tiene una nueva novia, mm. right? Uh, they see what's going on with the U.S. right now. They don't want to let it happen. They've got just as much resource as the U.S. when it comes to football and the culture, mm -hmm. when it comes to the federation. Uh, if there is a change, a shift in mentality, they can do things just as well as the U.S. men's national team. If and, and you even, believe there will the be, Canadian though. structure. If, even, even Canada. Right, but specifically Mexico. Do you believe that they will? And do you really believe that not this the most is that recent. motivation? Not, 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 in the, not in the recent. Maybe three years from now, they're going into the World Cup and you're thinking, yeah. hey, something changed. We did see but, a but statement. But from now, from now until, those, until that f yeah. three and a half, almost fourth year, because it's going to be three and a half until the World Cup, they don't have the U-20 World Cup yep. and they don't have the, the U-23 tournament, which is the Olympic Games. So that's going to be something that will hamper them because they don't have World Cup qualifying. Yeah. So where do you introduce this new generation? They also don't have players under 23 in this World Cup, which means they won't have a U26 player with World Cup experience in 2026. They are behind the eight ball. But in terms of a footballing country, in terms of technical ability and how they produce players in Liga MX, because mm -hmm. that's what they yeah. have to rely on, they're... They're a factory of production when it comes to players of a certain age. They just don't graduate them. Yeah, and they're not, you know, they're a factory, but a factory that doesn't sell any of its product is also right. the point, right? And Liga Mekis came out with a statement after Mexico crashes out saying, we are committed to the success we of the national team. We will analyze was a statement. Is, and is, is, that, is that them saying, hey, we're going to start selling players abroad even when it may not be for the most money? Because that's really the... That's the sacrifice that the Mexican clubs need to make. They know they can turn to Rayados, Tigres, Chivas, and sell for big money. Bigger money than they can sell to some team in Holland or some team in Belgium or some team even in the so there are lower few tiers teams of Spain, that want to, There are a few organizations with, or groups, I should say, within Mexican football that want to change things. Mm -hmm. But until the majority want to, right. it's going to be the same thing. And, and producer Beto whispered in my ear right now the amount of foreign players in Liga Mekis and, and people often take issue with that. What do you mean foreign players? That should increase the value. Well... If you look at the Premier League, it does increase the value for the domestic player because these foreign players of a certain weight, a certain category, they have to have a certain percentage to get a work permit to play in the Premier League. That's not the case with Liga Mekis. You can play in any national team in the world, regardless of how good or bad that national team is, and have a spot there. That's not the case in the UK. In the UK, you have to have a certain weight, mm -hmm. you have a certain category to increase the benefit. Resume. Exactly. Certain resume, certain CV. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. Feeling like you need a marketing degree and an extra day in your week to successfully market your small business? Let Constant Contact do the heavy lifting for you. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has powerful tools that make it easy to grow your audience, engage your customers, and sell more to boost your business. Now, in just a few clicks, you can launch a marketing campaign that's tailored to your business and goals. That includes email, social, SMS, and more. So you can sell more, raise more, and fast-track your business growth. Plus, you can always count on Constant Contact's award-winning customer support for guidance along the way. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Constant Contact. Helping the small stand tall. Speaking of resumes, 
Few folks at ESPN have a better CV than Alexis Nunez, and she joins us from live outside Khalifa International Stadium as we take a look uh -oh. at uh, Greg Berhalter's knockout stage loss. Oh, it's not as bad as 1934 when they lost 7-1 uh, to Italy. Speaking of Alexis, she is with us. Uh, she's been with us throughout this tournament here on Football Americas. We were on ESPN FC earlier, Alexis. You were painting the picture pre-game, painted for us post-game now. I'm sure the mood is very different. Yeah, guys, the mood is definitely different. It's just such an unfortunate end to what started out as a very exciting day. And you know me as I am the Football America's Vibes Queen. I want to bring you the vibes, but even I'm feeling the somber mood here <laughs> as the U.S. fans just stroll out in silence from the Khalifa International Stadium. And look, like I said, we got here really early, about 2 p.m., 1.30 p.m., so to speak, in the hot desert sun. And there were already USA fans here getting ready, getting excited, taking their photos just soaking in the moment and like I said I got to speak to them as per usual and it wasn't necessarily just a hopeful vibe because I think we're all always a bit hopeful when it comes to our countries in World Cups no matter the challenge ahead of us but it was actually a very slightly confident not a cocky vibe a very confident and appreciative vibe that what they had seen from the USA up until this point suggested that they had everything it took to get rid of this Netherlands team and I mean we saw last night on Football Americas we had our ESPN Netherlands uh, colleague Pascal Camperman who spoke about how over in the Netherlands they also had reservations not just of this tournament but of this Netherlands team as well they hadn't really impressed we heard Craig early on our ESPN FC pre-show before the match today say how we're used to some big glitzy names from the Netherlands and right now we're kind of relying on the likes of a Memphis Depay who has been questionable for club as well as for country well today he showed up and Pascal even said he was only expecting about 2,000 to maybe 3,000 maximum Netherlands fans here today and it's true they were absolutely outnumbered inside that stadium by the US fans I couldn't even hear them really as much when the goal scored and when Haji Wright's ball went in, um, even though it was a lucky goal, it was absolute scenes and limbs. You definitely heard from the U.S. fans there. <laughs> and that is what the atmosphere was like. And I just keep thinking to myself, what if that early Christian Pulisic chance went in? Because as the boys ended up looking a bit shell-shocked once the Netherlands got their first goal. The crowd kind of went down as well. They weren't singing as much. It was nothing like what we experienced in that match against Iran. We saw even Christian Pulisic going to take a corner later on in the game and he was kind of riling them up, telling them, come on guys, just still keep the faith, keep believing in them. And I think I understand them as well because you'd remember from the international break in the USA's match against Saudi Arabia just before this World Cup. Um, I had the chance to speak to Christian Pulisic following the match and there were so many questions about Greg Berhalter and what he really wanted to do with his team with so many great players, what their true identity was like. And I asked Christian that and he said, you know what, I just want us to be a really nasty team. I want that when we play other teams, we leave a bit on them. We're really hard to break down that when they see, oh, you have to play the USA, they're like, oh, geez, let me get ready for a physical battle. And we had seen that, I think, to a good extent up until today. Our good friend Nader Manua, he was sat beside me and... 
when he was talking about the Netherlands, he said, you know what, Lex, uh, with all due respect to the US, but it looked like men that just dealt with the boys. And that's how he kind of puts it down to. And the Netherlands, of course, their experience showed up in this one. We were questioning if the moment probably got to the US, but they seemed a lot easier to break down than what they had pretty much put out so far this tournament. Fans wanted to see more of how they were against England, but of course it comes down to being and having that killer instinct in that final third. Now, speaking to a lot of the fans outside of the stadium as well, getting some reaction, a lot of them actually seem proud and happy that the USA were able to, to compete with the best, but they really are lamenting that this was the Netherlands that was there for the taking, at least on paper, at least with all the rumors, and at least as how they were playing. They were there for the taking, and they're just kind of lamenting that in the final third, they didn't have that extra fierce power to get the job done today. So Alexis mentioned something there we haven't really covered yet, and that's the Haji Wright goal. <clears throat> Did he mean to, Herc? <laughs> he meant to be dangerous. Right. That's all that matters. Right. Uh, as a nine, that's all you can ask for. He got his goal. He put yep. his team somewhat back in this game. It was 2-1 at that point, yep. and you felt like there could be a wave pushing them forward, but too little too late. Yeah, I got uh, just a, a couple detail questions here for you, Alexis. Uh, I want to know specifically what you feel like the percentage split was between U.S., and Dutch fans. And then I'm wondering if you could tell me about the reaction when the fans finally realized that Gio Reyna was coming on, because it's a halftime sub. And I know when you were talking to fans before game, we even saw the video, they were chanting, Gio, Gio, Gio. They really wanted to see him before the game. So what did they do when they finally saw him on the field? Oh, finally. I think even I let out a scream when I finally saw him on the field. Nadam went to get me a, a <laughs> bottle of water, and when I came down, I was like, who's that tall boy I'm seeing? Is that Gio Reyna? And I was like, oh, my God, it's Gio Reyna. And then the kid behind me, he got up, and he was like, that's Gio Reyna. And I was like, yes, finally. Everyone was so excited, finally, to see Gio Reyna. Look, I, you know I got a lot, of, a lot of love for my boy Jesus Ferreira as well. I was excited to see him on the team sheet. What a story for him. And we know he's young, but I don't think anybody, even with his experience, wants to go up against the likes of Virgil van Dijk and his experience. But Gio Reyna just always adds something to it. And we finally got to see it. And we kept talking about what you guys kept saying the fact that he's been kept out for some time now is this anger gonna fuel him in this match so everybody actually was really excited to see him there were a ton of Gio Reyna shirts in the crowd and actually like I said the Netherlands fans definitely were outnumbered in this one even though you usually do see them because nobody can miss the bright orange colored shirts but the USA absolutely outnumbered them I would definitely say maybe 70-30 because there were actually a lot more neutral fans today than I even expected and each of them kind of had to pick a side and there were two tents outside of the Khalifa Stadium that were giving away free flags to, to anyone. You either had the Netherlands tent and you had the USA tent and we went over to the USA side and they said sorry babes but we've been out for like the past hour. People, all the neutral fans were grabbing the USA flags. There were only Netherlands fans flags left for this one so a lot of people came in there definitely rooting for the USA and even when the, the names were being read out on the monitor for the team sheets and the lineup. Christian Pulisic got a massive cheer from everyone, including a lot of Netherlands fans who admittedly always will recognize him, but they said that they've got to know a lot more of the names today, especially Tyler Adams. There it is. 
Alexis Nunes, as always, great to have you with us here on Football Americas. We really appreciate your presence and all that you've brought to the show through this uh, U.S. run, helping us out with our Mexico coverage as well. We, uh, we can't tell you enough how much we've enjoyed it. Thanks again. Cheers, guys. See you soon. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Alexis Nunes, always bringing the vibes, as uh, as she says vibes here and eyes. on Football Americas. Uh, great to have her and the perspective that she shares there. All right, so the U.S. Herc is not great when it comes to coming from behind. And, of course, today they fell behind by two in that first half. But really, Herc, in soccer, who is all that good at coming from behind? That's a tough thing to do. Well, apparently not the U.S. Yes. Zero wins. It's very difficult. You're chasing the game. Usually you're playing against better opposition in World Cup, especially World Cup knockout rounds. Very difficult to fault the team for not being able to be the first team to come back and, and win. Um, but that's usually how it is. That's usually how it goes. I will remind you, 2010, the U.S. men's national team became the first team not to lose in World Cup history after going 0-2 down. So... There you have it. They go down 2 nothing today. Get one back from Haji Wright. And then in the end, a third goal. And that's the final score as we take a look at the updated brackets. Oh, what could have been a U.S.-Argentina quarterfinal. The golden generation against Lionel Messi will not be. Get this man on straight. <laughs> Thrilled to welcome into the show Juan Carlos Osorio, El Profe, who joins us now for a tactical breakdown of what we just witnessed. Profe, thanks for your time. We'll get into the board here in just a second. Uh, but I want to start with what you often look at first when we start talking about a game, and that is the lineup. It's a statement of intent from the manager, specifically the decision from Burhalter today to use effectively his false nine option. What is the intent? What was he telling us with that decision? Um, uh, welcome to everybody. Um, I do think that um, the idea with that uh, false nine was for him to, uh, in this case, right, let's go to the board, to drop off and or descend and try to make numerical advantage in uh, in the middle third and in the central channel. Aside from that, uh, the way the game developed, 
and at times it was like a man marking in the middle. You remember it was the middle third was the young, the run, and Klassen, and sometimes they would just take the three man to man, and many times Adams ended up playing ahead of the two others in, uh, in, in, inside midfielders. Now that didn't happen. I never saw him. I never saw the number nine really dropping off and try to play uh, to play as a fourth central midfielder. So the idea for me was to keep the ball, earn possession. The problem with that is that then you only have the white players, in this case uh, Pulisic and Wea, and Wea, to try to make to get in behind their defenders, because <clears throat> they decide to give the two central uh, central defenders a lot of time on the ball. So this is basically what happened. So. We have a lot of the ball. I mean, United States have a lot of the ball going this way. And I think not not too, not too much rim, but Zimmerman has a lot of time on the ball. And as they progress, there was too many, uh, what they call, uh, conti continuity passes. Continuous passes, yeah. No, it's like a type of pass where you only look to continue with the next pass, but no progression and no, no penetration, penetration yeah. and no like a fixing a passing where, let's say, from, from one center back to the opposite uh, winger. Do, do you, that think, never you think Van Gaal singled out Walker Zimmerman as a focal point, let him have the ball? I don't, I think so. Knowing what I know about him, I think he did that. I think he probably concentrate on let let the the two center backs have the ball and not to worry about not worry too much about them. But let's go back to because I really want to make this point. So let's say he has the ball, the goalkeeper has the ball, and they do man marking. The things <clears throat> if you look at it in this um, from above, then you can say that despite of what a lot of people say that the structures or the systems are just uh, telephone numbers, I disagree. Because when you match up different systems, then you have to understand that the opposition is a facilitator because it's giving you a space, but you have to to, to see, you have to be able to read where the space was. And the space today was in this inside. For who was it in half for the who, spaces? Probably. For who? Right, now I will go to that. Because they played, we knew they would play with three in the back plus the wide, um, the wing backs. Yes. But we didn't know if they would play with the two and three forwards to spread the. Uh, the defenders, but they didn't do that. They put a class class in here yep. as a media punta or as a number ten, and they put the two strikers together. Sometimes the pipe will members. go there and they yeah. move, or the other way around. But it was it was always a space, and most of the time the space was here. Now who can use that space? Let's say the goalkeeper goes into the fullback, so now. We have Robinson on the ball, and 
Pulisic brings this wipe wing, uh, the, the wing back all the way down. Now he can go inside to the point where he has the, 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 the right arm has to come with him. So create that space Correct. for the number nine or for the number seven, I mean, for the striker, I mean, or for the winger, in this case, Polisic or uh, uh, Ferreira. Ferreira. But that didn't happen. If we go on the other side, then it would be a similar situation. Then uh, where I can push the wind back all the way. This stays man to man, as we said, and then he can come here, bring this guy, or the drone, you say? Yes. Drone into you and facilitate or generate this space. In the worst case scenario, I think the number nine, even if he does, if he doesn't drop, he has to, and this is trainable, if the balls go to the left, what he has to do is make, don't make this run because he will follow, but make, offer yourself, let him see you, so he will follow. So you attract the side, and you open this space for him to come, mm. for him to come, for him to go here. And even from the opposite fullback getting here, that will prevent from the counter attacks, because don't forget that we stay here 2v2. Yeah. Profe, let me ask you a question. Now, they, let me go finish ahead. with this, because there might be people who, who can say there are other things that we can, the U.S. could have done. Yes, they could. When Robinson is in the ball, policy can come in this, in this uh, intervalo, and he can come here. But the problem with that is then for the win back, it's too easy because he, can on, he only has to read this ball, and it's a straight run to get him to, to close him down. And what you want is to create chaos among the defenders. That's why I prefer this way. The, win the wingers wide open. They attract the fullback. And now the fullbacks are the ones that they are the um, outlet ball for, for the U.S. national team. And I have it here in the, studies, in the statistics. Many, many times they did that. Those coming in here and got the ball. And the idea is to get it from the semicircle and inside the, the, the penalty spot. And from here he can play out to the winger, he can play to the number nine, he can do whatever. But many times he will miss out. They didn't read it as well as with Robinson. And I was talking to Hercules and he was saying he doesn't like to do that too often because then the space is here. Yes, but you have to, this, you, you, you keep this guy busy and he is 2v2 and by the time they played the ball, we can come and the fullback on the other side can do this right. and it's three versus two. Profe, if I may, if we can put yeah. these players, these center backs right here, man to man, there we go. And what I'm gonna do is, I'm gonna take this ball over here and oftentimes what I was seeing is Serginho Dest drive the ball in here, okay? And Way would try to occupy as high as he can but he would come in as Serginho Dest came wide with it and I saw Weston McKinney all of a sudden yeah. here when this ball comes this way. I saw that. Now, my, my problem here is there's a space when the ball gets lost. Yeah. And it's a very direct line into the midfield or directly to Memphis, yeah. who's 1v1 yeah. with Walker Zimmerman. And yeah, we yeah. saw that oftentimes in yeah. the first half. Yeah. The constant need of the outside backs to play as interiors, whether it's yeah. Robinson yeah. or Serginho Dest, yeah. forced Eunice Musa or Weston McKinney wide, and it just left 
this man, Tyler Adams, on an island. So Tyler Adams starts here high, and he's forced to make 40-yard recovery runs, and the ball ends up this way, and then back here. He can't chase him, and then into the goal. I was watching um, the, uh, your, the, the block with Casey Keller, and I, I think he was talking about discipline, and Hercules make a point about at knowing how to attack. Well, the problem is that attacking well-organized attacking football, but what they in the, the Spanish call football de ubicación, right, means that we don't want this to happen. Let's go back to this one. What Hercules is saying, he's right. You don't want the fullback to come here and you inside midfielder ended up there. What you want is that he try to bring all the, he does this he makes this run and see what he does most likely he will come here and that's advantage for us because or for the americans because then you have a class in following the full back and he will not do that right. it, it, he won't he won't be able to live with his with his pace you saw that even the fullback struggle with his pace so the same thing on the other side and they, and they have the, the most athletic players are white. So you have to make this run. He has to make this run and keep the back three right here, deep into their side. But they didn't do that. And we end up doing what Hercules said many times. It was um, McKinney there or Musa. Musa here. And we we were wide open. We, we just didn't connect well enough. So... The first 10 minutes mm. before the goal falls felt really good. From a, If you're a U.S. fan, you're seeing the team have a lot of the ball. You see a really good opportunity. And then right around 10, 15 minutes in, it felt like the game started to change. The, the game plan started to go more and more the Dutch way. They seemed to have more and more control. From a managerial standpoint, what changes could have been made? What would you have done in that situation? Would you have waited until halftime? Would you have changed tactically something at around 30 minutes? Because it really felt like from a great start, the U.S. fell off a cliff almost. <clears throat> I think in, in, in football in, at the top level, there are many times you can come back from a 2 nil down. But there are not too many in the World Cup that come down, that come back up, or, or they get their lives back after you are... There's only one, actually, and that was in 2010. Exactly, exactly. <coughs> so, so the first goal dictates everything. Mm -hmm. And I, did, I don't think we mentioned this in this program, but yesterday was a debate about that. And my point was, I can see the Dutch team with a better chance to score in the United States than United States on the Dutch. But it was the other way around. I, I, was, I was wrong. Policy has the best yeah, chance, yeah. and you put that away. It changes things, right? It changes the whole thing because then you force the back three, not the not the wing backs, their back three, Van Dyke and Timber Ake. Yes, yes. Timber and, uh, and Ake, and I don't like to to push that, that that line too higher up because they know they will struggle with pace. Mm. So they make, the first goal dictates everything, and then. The game just goes on. There is nothing between the 15th and the 30th minute. But then we, United States, concede that second goal at the 45th minute plus, just before half break. And 
that kills the basically that that forced the manager to make other maybe other substitutions. So, give me that perspective, right? Because you're probably as a manager at one nothing. You've got your plan. You know what you want to do, and I, then boom, the goal literally falls second before the half. It, mentally, are you scrambling? Like, does that have to change exactly what you're going to do at halftime, and, and maybe the changes that you were going to make? Because I think at one nothing, maybe you you, you could wait till the hour right. mark. But you at two nothing, it felt like yeah. you better do something now, or it's going to be over. I would be very over, clear over. I w because I have done it in the past. The first half, you play close attention to the systems and where the space is. And obviously top managers or top coach sees that during the game, but you can enforce that with the technology. Now you show two or three clips at halftime to the players in the board because that everybody's available to do that. And you point it out and I would have a substitution in the middle third because none, what, none of them where, were where making profit? these runs. Where would, probably, you sub, where would you have subbed? Here. Probably the, this type of players there making these runs that I just spoke about because we needed, well, United States needed to push the back three back. Okay, so your message would have been different. You wouldn't have changed the player. <laughs> your message would have been different. Different, and if I do have a very athletic player, as athletic as Musa or McKinney, I would probably have done. I right, would make to a pin change. him back a little. And it, because I don't think the. What I, have, what I have seen from the United States, the, the two central defenders can change anything. Because the one thing that they didn't do, the central defenders, was where to run with the ball like Thiago sometimes does. Or, right, Thiago Silva. Yeah, Thiago yes. Silva, or top defenders. They, you know, Rodrigo, now, I mean, um, um, the, um, the center back for Spain. Yeah, yeah Rodrigo. Yeah. Now he plays as a central yeah. defender, and he runs with the ball, and that invites the opposition to come, liberates one player, and then you fix whoever comes, and you, your next pass is right then. But I would, to, to go into your question, I will make clear that we need those deep runs and push all the, the Dutch team back here. Even the, for the strikers, they would be higher up to, to the pitch. Because I think they were, they were, they show some signs of being tired. Yeah, I, I think uh, the Dutch showed signs last 15-20 no, minutes. And oh, the and U.S. United as well. Oh, that could be as well. Yeah. Uh, Frankie De Jong was instrumental, and I kind of had him being one of those instrumental players. Who I didn't have being instrumental was Denzel Dumfries or Dumfries. Oh my goodness! He, he was so good, probably the best player on the field. Why was he? Why was this player I, I, here so effective, with and without the ball? I think he. He won. He won his athletic battle with him. With Christian Pulisic. Yeah, I think so. And you, you are absolutely right. I think he was the most influential player. He has two assists and he scored a brilliant goal with his, with his left foot. And he's a right-footed. And when you have the two wing backs scoring goals because the Blinn scored the second goal, then you have to really question who was in charge or who was missing an assignment, the, right? The guy who was marking him. Yeah. They didn't have anybody. If they have a winger here, then I can understand that. They, but credit to the Dutch, they do playing, playing, and in the first goal is a, is a master of class how to get out of that pressure yeah. playing one-touch football because the U.S. didn't go at, at a time. And that's what I, th I said. There were signs of being a little tired because when you you go one by one, it depends on how you're feeling. When you go all together, it's because you feel fresh and you just follow whoever goes for the ball. Question for you. 
We've talked a lot about Mexico on this show, and Tata Martino, the manager, got criticized a lot for what he did against Argentina, right? He wasn't aggressive <coughs> enough. As a fan, if I'm a U.S. fan and I watched the first half of this game, I said, boy, this team is being very aggressive, and I kind of like that. And yet when we hear the analysis from Hercules, when we hear the analysis from Casey, they use the word naive. Was the U.S. approach in that first half naive? Did they not show enough respect to this Dutch side? I don't know if the, the U.S., because only Mr. Berhalter can answer that. If they have played in the back with, at some points, I would probably go with a 3-4-3 and just have the... the, the Keep the superior the, the superiority advan the advantage on the flanks. Reduce the amount of me inside midfielders inside midfielders, and now I will go wide all the time and just play two versus one. You really like the the mirror, well, right? At least the three at the back. Why is that so important? Because at the end of the day, that's is man to man really, and you have this the number the the advantage in in your defender in the defensive zone. And you have three versus two for their counter-attacking because they play very good, very effective counter-attacking game. But you keep the four versus... Now you have four midfielders because you have white players that could be your full-backs, maybe two central midfielders and more athletic players, and you play with three up front, and you just keep going forward. Let me ask you about Van Gaal. You obviously know Van Gaal. Yeah. You've seen his style. You've seen his mannerisms, how he presents himself to the people. He seems like a no-business type of individual. When everybody's talking about the U.S.'s chances against the Netherlands and how they like their chances versus the Netherlands, how this Netherlands isn't the Netherlands of the past, how these players aren't the Van Bastens, the Bergkamps, the Van Persies, the Van der Sars of the past, the way he set his team up, what did it tell you? Did it tell you, like, oh, okay, come at us and we'll show you how good we can be? Well, I, I, I have the privilege to see to have seen all their games and they play against Ecuador, they play the same way against Senegal, they, they play the same way. I didn't see the third game Qatar. against Qatar. Qatar. I didn't go to that game. <laughs> but they you play, did good. <laughs> no disrespect to anybody, but they just play to score the first goal and after that they just control the game and pass it and pass it and pass it until they kill the game basically right. they kill the opposite the opposition so good reaction to us when they got the game to they score and they put two to one but again it shows the that they have quality enough to oh we need one more goal we go for it and then after that is is no problem but Rough. finally i would say because a lot of teams don't like to play the mirror system. So my final and last suggestion is, if that's the case, like today, you want to fix the, by, the, the back five, you need four players. So you start with a four, two, four. No four, or you, you, again, you have two, your best two central midfielders, you add another striker, and you play two in the central channel against the, the three. So it changes like that, right? So this this will be the structure. So you have two v two here. You still have. This is this their structure. You still have two versus one. You have two strikers that can go here or drop to help the two, right? Or vice versa. And he is white and he is white. 
and you still have the full backs to attack. Right, and that's that engages it, the, that's the arms. That, like that's, you how said. that's how base, and that's how Ecuador scored against the Dutch team, playing four-two-four, and keeping Plata wide, and keeping the other winger here. Stupian. And this fullback, if you remember, Stupinian has a great game yeah. going that forward because they, then they don't know how to mark here. I have one last question for you. It has nothing to do with the tactics board. You've now seen this U.S. team quite a bit, right? There's going to be a discussion as to whether Greg Berhalter stays through 2026 or not. There's quite a few people, including Casey Keller, who thinks he may want to go back to the club world. Like, that's what he likes to do. He wants to work every day. If the U.S. job comes open, knowing that there's a World Cup in the United States in 2026, and knowing La Camada, the generation of players, how attractive would that job be to you? Oh, I think... A it is a, a, a great job to have or to, it, and a great program to be part of as a nation and as a, as a football, football team. Fantastic opportunity, not just for me, for any other manager. I think it's a great, the way they compete. And the Americans, well, I, I went to university there and, and the one thing that I learned then was that, that you can compete against anybody. So, for instance, the way I coach and the way I approach the game is, is, is because of that, because I learned it in, in the States. You can compete against anybody, you're well prepared. And the other thing is the way I train, it was because I had the opportunity to watch the Chicago Fire, I mean the Chicago Bulls basketball team training, and I thought, this is back in 1990, I thought, this is the way to go train the game through real game situations. So I see all those aspects and it would be a fantastic opportunity for any manager in the world, any club, any, any coach. You know, I, from what you've seen, the eye test in this World Cup, okay, there's going to be an expanded World Cup 2026, more teams, 48 teams. How far do you think this U.S. team right now, they're all 21, 22 years old, they'll be like 25, 26 in 2026. How far do you think this team can go? Pakistan in the próximo Mundial. I think... Uh, as a home nation. U.S. has a, an advantage as far as the, who they can compete against. Even if they play from now on, knowing that they will have a place in the next World Cup, even if they play the, uh, friendly games, they can choose and pick and probably is a great temptation for any any nation in the world to play in the United States versus other nation teams that can only play against medium opposition and you won't the only way you can uh, make those players better is by training properly but especially by competing against the best okay because there is raw Natural talent. Octavos, second here. round, quarters. Where do no, you see I think them? they should go to, even to the at least to the fifth game. Wow, final, so. at least. Yeah. Profe, okay. again, brilliant stuff. Uh, incredible what you've added to our coverage here. The folks back home are loving it. We really appreciate your time. It's been uh, it's been great to have you with us. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up hypnotic and cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom! Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good! 
Dubbed. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. 10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Your relationships, your skills, your customer base. How about businesses on Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash network, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash network now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash network. Right now, let's take a look at some quotes because they're starting to stream in. All the managers, all the players talking in the aftermath. And here's what we're hearing from Greg Berhalter who had these comments about today's matchup. Quote, we don't have a Memphis Depay right now scoring in the Champions League. Okay, so very interesting right there. Oh, he's not wrong. Pointing out Thanks the, for that one. What many would say is obvious there. But again, Greg Berhalter, and the quote is, we don't have a Memphis Depay right now who's scoring in the Champions League. Brilliant stuff from El Profe as we uh, clear everything here on the Football Americas set. Perk, what do you make of those comments right there? Genius. He's right. <laughs> Shots fired at the players, no, at the American players? No, no. They also don't have a Pep Guardiola. They also don't have a Mourinho. That's a shot fired. No, it's not. It's the truth. And he's being honest. And I'm not taking a shot. It's just the truth. Like, what right. do you expect me to say? Fine. Listen, Memphis Depay is a very good player. There's a reason he's been where he's been. Okay? They paid what they paid they for paid him, right? They paid what they paid. United, Barcelona. Barcelona got him on a free, but they had to pay a lot Whatever. to him. Yeah. You don't, you don't just play at that level if you're just some Joe Schmo. He's a very good player. And I think the quality today was evident. That's yeah. what he's trying to get at. The yeah. quality was evident. The gap in, in player quality was evident. But I repeat, it was also very evident in coaching. And I said many times before, as green as this team is, as novice as this team can be at times, mm -hmm. you know who's the most green and sometimes the most naive? I'll let you say it. It's Greg Berhalter. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. You don't have a Memphis. You also don't have a Pep. Is it more, let me ask this, was the gap bigger today between the Dutch team and the American team? More Louis van Gaal and Greg Berhalter. I think Louis van Gaal and Greg Berhalter. Really? Yeah, because I, I, I mean, I, I just, just want to say Pascal Kemperman says Sergio Dest doesn't get in that 26. I know you did a combined 11. I think that was mostly based on the tournament, but yeah, if we're really but doing Serginio an 11. Dest was running by how many Americans are getting in this Dutch it, it, don't, squad? Don't do Dutch that, because it, it's not that. Uh, you, you, it's not about comparing a player a, man a for man. Of the gap? Okay, so why do certain teams work well under systems and beat better teams, better players? Because a manager can make up for those. You can make up saying. for those deficiencies. That wasn't the case today. What could he have done? Would it, could well, he not have, be so have, naive as one. So pull out Tata Martino and, and no, I mean, no, no. We would like have hammered way, him for that. We like would have hammered way, him for that. Did you like the way they played against England? Yeah. Oh, that was a that was a professional performance, right? Why couldn't you try playing the same way against the Netherlands? Do you think they ran out Why of did steam? You think, yeah, yeah, a little bit of that because it's very difficult to play, and that goes into being naive. If you know, at some point, the fourth game, 
you're asking the same midfielders to play. One coming off an injury. Yeah. Okay? And Weston McKinney. You're asking Christian Pulisic after that knock, and I know it's about managing the pain, yeah. to play his fourth game. You're asking a lot of those defenders like Anthony Robinson, who's so powerful in the way he drives, but heavy-footed at times, and even more so when he's fatigued, to play that way. Yeah, you're asking a lot of them. That's, that goes back to the coaching, being naive. The most disappointing thing about this is this Dutch team didn't beat you by overwhelming you with the ball. They beat you by being smarter than you. They beat you by sitting back and picking you apart. Who does that? Who does that? Think about that. I mean, the best teams. The well-coached teams. The well-coached teams. Right. You Those know, are the teams that do that. We talk about quality as it pertains to the starters, but I think quality in terms of great footballing nations is also represented in your depth. And something Greg Berhalter talked about before the tournament was how he was going to use his subs, and, and it made it sound like he was going to use them a lot. Everybody, right? Right. But in the end... When you have to go back to that midfield three, and we talked about you know what defines them, their athleticism. Well, after you play one, two, three, and you get to the fourth game, that athleticism is not going to be what it was in the first game. And so when we talk about, oh, the Dutch are this much better than the Americans, they also have that many more players who can course, come in and, and, and make and a difference. The, U.S. didn't have that depth that. in midfield. And Greg Berhalter realized Especially that. in midfield. Because he didn't go to the well with uh, Luca De La Torre. Ooh, you know? speaking of, 99.99% sure that you would. You said he would start a game yeah. here, and he didn't I even play. He, he didn't play. He didn't play. You take, you take great New pride in Seb. Luca not playing. New shoes for that's, Seb. That's a little weird. Uh, well, you owe me the Serbia one. You lost that one. I mean, I my mean, shoes are going to be a lot more than 50 bucks, brother. I'll tell you that 50 much. Bucks. We'll get to that, to get that later. Uh, but you look at the subs he made. You look at World Cup qualifying, what's essentially a three-game window. He would use 26 out of 27 players. The only ones who would not play would be like the third goalkeeper. So you thought he would have gone to that well, him trusting his team so much, right? He realized the level was a lot greater than he thought, or the trust was not as great as he had had. Mm -hmm. So he essentially only used Haji Wright, Jesus Ferreira, okay, for a half, Shaq Moore a few times, Giovanni Reyna, Yedlin, and Kellen Acosta. That's it, right? Who am I missing here? Aronson. And Brendan Aronson. Yeah, Brendan Aronson got I mean, in. But sparingly. He yeah. went with the same core. And sooner rather than later, fourth game, here you are. Cameron Carter-Vickers got to start. Cameron Carter-Vickers got to start. Yeah. But sooner rather than later, here you are. And the gas tank wasn't yeah, as wasn't full as full. it was. And you needed it, uh, that's yeah. for sure. One thing we always need here on Football Americas are your questions. And so next we head to check dimensions with the folks on social media talking about... Serge Jim asks, would Pepe or Pifak been better choices over Haji or Ferreira? Herc? Um, very, very difficult to be critical of Haji when he gets a World Cup goal, right? Yep. But there were moments when you thought maybe a different type of player would be best suited. And today, Jesus Ferreira, which is just so crazy to me that you would count on him so much. Greg Berhalter, that was his man. If you said Greg Berhalter had one player up front that he trusted, it was Jesus Ferreira. And he only went to that well once, and it was in the most important game, and he pulls him at half. A Ricardo Pepe in certain times, especially if a Josh Sargent, who my, was my de facto number one, couldn't go, would have been just so crucial to you. Just in form, a player that can drop in between those lines, that could combine. Uh, a player that's gotten, gotten you out of tough spots yeah. before. Not being able... 
to go to that, not, being, not having him here, that was difficult for me to understand. It felt like the number nine decisions were based on profile instead of form. And we talked about it during the game. It felt like instead of Greg Berhalter bringing his three biggest hammers, he brought three different tools that he could use in different situations. Right. Was that the wrong approach? Of course, good Hindsight's players are good players. Again, I will remind you, this is what we do. I know. We work in TV, and we sit here, and we analyze. This is what we do. And, yes, um, knowing what we know now, more informed players, goal scores, which are always a value, especially a guy like Jordan Pifak that's proven to score goals in many different ways mm -hmm. and in different setups. He has value. I know you can say the form or whatever, but you just use the guy in Jesus Fedeira, who the last time that he actually played a game was October 23rd in Major League Soccer. So that form that you're talking about, it'll take time to get him there, goes out the window. Right. So a lot of different things that didn't sit well. And, well, at the end of the day, you know, guys like Ricardo Pepe and Jordan Pifak will always be a what if. Let's get to our next question here, here World Cup, I mean. on Check the Mentions on Football Americas as we continue to wrap up the aftermath of the U.S. defeat. Two Netherlands in the round of 16, three won the final score. Lloyd Van Ernen, maybe some Dutch roots there. Does this loss show the gap between America and the world? Does he mean the Americas in the world? Because that, I think he that means is America. Well, I know, but United that States. is evident because it's it's it was in this second round Brazil, Argentina, the United States. So you can count the Americas as yeah. well, right? And it's Let's not the honest. world; it's the elite of the world. The I elite mean, of maybe the world, we're which saying, is still in Europe. Yeah, maybe we're saying we've said along that this Dutch team isn't like historically elite, they're still a top 10 team in the world. But so I'm maybe that's the question, honest, the gap I, between I, the U.S. and the top I, 10. I do see there being a gap between the Brazils and the informed Argentinas to the rest of the Americas. Okay? And I'm going to include CONCACAF in that. CONCACAF yeah. in the Americas, not just CONCACAF. Okay? And Brazil and Argentina are as close as you can get to competing with the best in Europe. And very close. I actually think right. Brazil is my, my team to win this right. in this World Cup. But since there's that much of a gap between those two and the rest of the Americas, you could only imagine what the gap is to the elite in Europe. Yeah. Nobody, nobody, and I repeat, nobody from Brazil, Argentina down has a Kylian Mbappe type of player. Has a Neymar. Or even a, a Jared Ashakiri, who's yeah. already got three goals in his last three World Cups. If you think about that, that that's a harsh reality, but it's the truth. So it's not just America that you just lump that into. Yeah. All right, our final question here on Football Americas. La última y nos vamos. Well, not quite vamos. There's still a few more things left in the show. But uh, let's get to the final question here in Czech Dimensions. It actually comes from uh, one of our colleagues, Jen. She was the producer of the uh, E60 on the NWSL's 2021 year that was. Remember, she joined us on the show a couple months ago. She asked, what is worse? In fact, we couldn't track back into the box and stay with our marks, giving up easy goals, or that we just don't have a clinical finisher. So many golden chances missed. Kirk, what's worse? I, I think it's defending, because how innocent that defending is. I mean, you could not have a clinical finisher, and don't make that face, but you would count on Christian Pulisic to, to bury that one, right? You that count chance, on, yeah. Yeah, you would count on your players to take their chances and the guys who take their chances to be good at taking their chances. But 
you can't be a good team if you let in those type of goals, those easy goals. Yeah. So to me, you can stay in games if you're not finishing. You can't stay in games if you're giving up those type of plays. Do you see my rationale Yeah, here? I guess my counter to that would be we talked all buildup about the lack of a number nine and, right. and how much that, you know, kind of puts a ceiling well, on this team. And so when you talk about finishing, I think that's, of course, Polisic misses his chance. But if you have a clinical number nine, you know, the ceiling for this team, and if they can find that in the next four years, I think jumps. The thing but we talked with the coaches because Greg Berhalter okay, doesn't but use we talked, a nine. Okay, but we clinical. talked about, like, what the strengths of this team were, and we talked about athleticism and specifically in the midfield. So for me, that's the bigger letdown there because that's what you knew you could count on, not just coming into this tournament, but it was reinforced through the first three games. Like, if you would have told me that Tyler Adams and Yunus Musa were going to lose their marks and that's where the first goal would come from and get picked apart in midfield – I would have been like, oh, man, I'm going to be really let down by that because we hadn't seen it yet to date. So I think that, to me, is, is maybe the bigger disappointment just because... Which one would you take? I figured, I figured the Which number nine, would and they wouldn't be clinical Which finishing Which one would you here. take, a clinical finisher or, or better defending? If I could... Because you no, a clinical one. finisher. It's like a quarterback well, well, in the then, NFL. If you could find you're gonna one... Score, you're going to score a goal, but you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna get three scored on you. All right, so uh, great to check the mentions. Really appreciate everybody uh, sending in your questions. We have just crossed the 90-minute mark here on Football Americas. Wow. Producer Betao telling us we are into added time, which we know in this World Cup like has, been, uh, has been very, very long. So you never know uh, what we might get into. Actually, we're going to get into uh, MLS news here. The league has announced sanctions, Herc, uh, against the Los Angeles Galaxy for violating salary budget and roster guidelines. These sanctions stem from back in 2019 when LA added Christian Pavon to the roster as a TAM player. The sanctions, Herc, include $1 million in fine for the club, a loss of $1 million in general allocation money, Chris Klein has been suspended through May of next year. Now, you have been very critical of Chris Klein throughout his time at the LA Galaxy and throughout the existence of this show. Is this the straw that breaks the camel's back for you? Should Klein be out of the LA Galaxy? So, can't get a good team on the field and now you can't do the books right? Now you're, now you're purposely cheating? I and mean, we crucified Inter-Miami for this, mm -hmm. right? What happened Paul McDonough? suspended for a year and a half. So he was in May of 21 that he got busted or that the news came out. He was suspended through the 2022 MLS season. And that was season. supposed to be the... And he lost his job because remember he'd he gone from Miami to Atlanta and lost That was supposed to be the fine or the punishment that kept everybody else from not doing it, right? Now here comes the second one and it's not as heavy. I know that Paul McDonough probably did it with five different players mm -hmm. in Inter. But at some point, you got to ask yourself a few, a few things. If one, if you're the LA Galaxy, is where do you draw the line with Chris Klein? Like, when is enough enough? Right. And two, if you're Major League Soccer, is if teams are continually trying to break the rules, don't have those stupid rules. I'm with you on that. I'm 100% with you on like, that. Like, change things. Right. If, if they want to be more ambitious, let them. Let them be ambitious. Right. Uh, there is no greater sin, Herc, in a salary cap league than cheating the salary cap, right? Because we've all come to the table, agreed to play by certain uh, rules. Worth noting, the Galaxy, on top of all the other sanctions, can't add international players next summer. Remember, Ricky Puch, Brugman, Casares, they brought in a lot of guys uh, in the summer. I'm thinking that's going to be a huge blow for the Galaxy because that summer market this coming year, I mean, it's loaded with players. If the Galaxy, if the Galaxy can't... Uh, Producer Beto saying, Luis Suarez in my ear, I hear you, I hear you. If the Galaxy can't reload in the summer... I mean, that's a huge blow to this team. You think so? Who just won MLS Cup? LAFC. LAFC! What'd they do? In your city! They reloaded in the summer. 
and, and now this is happening, you can't reload? Your immediate reply is, well, maybe next year? Mm. Yeah. Uh, it seems like more and more the uh, LA Galaxy, your former team, losing ground in the battle for Los Angeles with LAFC. All right. Who said that? That'll do it. Not just for the U.S. participation in the 2022 oh. World Cup, but for this episode of Football Americas as well. We are not done, though. We are not going home. We are here throughout the rest of the tournament, and I'm we will be on flights. live with you every day, 4 p.m. Eastern time, right here on ESPN+. For Hercules Gomez, producer Beto, the rest of our amazing, hardworking production team, here in Doha, back in Los Angeles, back in Bristol, for all those good folks, I'm Sebi Salazar. Thanks for coming on this journey with us. We'll see you tomorrow, right back here on ESPN+. Plus.